from the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. What do you think of the idea of a national divorce? The concept of a formalization of the cultural divide we see between red and blue states. Two recent big national stories, the random and lawless expulsion of two black lawmakers in Tennessee and revelations about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas have me thinking a lot about that idea. And maybe we are already living in two very different countries. We'll discuss next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm always glad that you have decided to join us. So America has always been an experiment, a country with a growing population and expansive geography and an incredibly diverse citizenry over time. It means our democracy has often been put to the test. It's just not easy to keep so many different people so far away from each other, all aimed at accomplishing similar goals, all feeling like they're part of one nation. And we're at a period of time right now when I think this country's experiment is really being put to the test. A couple things happened in the last week that gave me real alarm about the idea of America. Think of this story out of Tennessee where two African-American lawmakers were expelled from their positions in the legislature for bringing what was called disorder to the state's House of Representatives. They were on the floor with megaphones, speaking out of turn. But they were expelled, and a white legislator who was with them was not. There's also the story last week about Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, who was found to have accepted unbelievable luxury vacations and other perks that were paid for by a billionaire Republican donor. This has been going on apparently for decades while Thomas has been on the Supreme Court and he hadn't disclosed any of it. He's being defended by a lot of his supporters saying, well, this is just what you do with friends. But we all know that judges at the Supreme Court level, at the district court level in our city, are supposed to behave really differently from that. They're supposed to observe lots more distance, especially from people who have a lot of money and a lot of political interests. 
And of course, all of this has been happening as former President Trump was indicted recently on 34 separate counts of falsifying business records in New York City. Now, before all this happened, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who represents a district in Georgia, and she's kind of a rising star in the Republican Party, she called for something called a national divorce, saying maybe we're so different now, maybe we have such different values that we could just divide the country up. Red states go one way, blue states go the other. And we call an end to the American experiment as we've known it. That idea sparked a lot of discussion and a lot of arguments, and it also inspired some really thoughtful analyses of the practical side of things. How would you do something like that? How could it be negotiated? How would it be structured? How would it be organized? But after the last week, it's now kind of occurring to me that maybe this won't be something that happens by negotiation. Maybe states and individuals will just kind of pull away from each other and from the common sense of American governance in a really chaotic and disorderly fashion. Maybe they'll just start doing things their own way. And eventually, the idea of one nation living under a common sense of governance will just go away. Is that possible? Is that what we're witnessing right now? I spent a lot of time over the weekend just thinking about that, thinking about how dramatic these stories are, how frequently they're coming, and how much of a threat they seem to me to the idea of America. Sheikha Dalmia is a visiting fellow with George Mason University's Mercatus Center, where she has started a program to study and resist the rise of right-wing populist authoritarianism around the world and here in America. She's someone that I talk to a fair amount about the polarization that we see in our country, what it means and where it means we're headed. I'm really pleased to welcome her back to the show today to help us discuss what is going on with the coming apart of America. Shika, welcome back to Detroit Today. Always a pleasure, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So I, I, I want to start with this idea of national divorce, which Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, posited uh, a while back and which lots of people have offered, I think, really thoughtful responses to. Is that something that is an absurd idea? Or is it something that, as I said in the open, could just happen overnight, that, that we could just kind of come apart over these differences that we have, over our really disparate ways of interpreting what it means to be an American. Uh, so I don't think it would happen overnight. Um, yeah, there is movement towards this idea that uh, you know, red states and blue states are not getting along right now. Their issues are too 
fundamental, the chasm is too big and growing. Uh, however, I mean, I don't think we are at a point where we would have a national divorce at this minute. But uh, what we are careening towards is some kind of constant escalation of hostilities between the two sides, the blue states and the red states, that may eventually lead to something like a civil war that we witnessed, uh, you know, 200 years ago. As you said, this is not something that's going to happen uh, peacefully. It's not, you know, there are too many uh, conservatives and right-wingers who live in blue states and vice versa. Uh, you would need to have some kind of a population transfer between the two. Uh, you know, or I mean, I come from India where we had a very messy partition mm -hmm. with uh, Pakistan, with Muslims and Hindus forming their own separate countries. India was supposed to be sort of a liberal democracy, but Pakistan was a you know, Muslim country, and it was extremely messy and extremely bloody. I don't think we are... Uh, you know, at that point, but, um, and we won't be, we won't have that kind of a wrenching partition. What we will have is like the slow escalation of hostilities, growing bloodshed, growing violence, which will make, you know, January 6th pale in comparison. And eventually, maybe the seeds, uh, you know, the, the ground will be set for some kind of a separation. But let me just point out a few things over here. First of all, what Marjorie Taylor Greene, when she talks about a national divorce, she's actually not talking about secession. She's not talking about, you know, two Americas. No. What she's talking about is some kind of a return to the Articles of Federation, where, uh, you know, ha you had radical social control, uh, uh, state control over issues, and the federal government was... Uh, confined to providing some very limited and basic functions, right? And this plays into a certain libertarian streak uh, on the right. Mm -hmm. um, so it's so you know that's kind of what she's getting at. And uh, but you know the question is, what would that mean? What would this article, uh, Articles of Confederation kind of America look like if it were to function? And I think if you look back at the history of it, it all started with slavery, right? I mm -hmm. mean, were, it was complicated, but, it, you know, there was a question of how do you pay for the Revolutionary War? And, you know, some of the states didn't want to pay for it, and the federal government wanted to impose taxes on them, so it was a tax revolt. But it was also in many ways... Uh, you know, a bid by southern states to maintain a system of slavery, right? So there is an uh, there is definitely a racial overtone to a lot of what Marjorie Taylor Greene is suggesting over here. Yes, and and I want to come back to that idea of of the role that race uh, is playing in all of the things that I think uh, we see going on uh, that that highlight this this divide. But I also want to go back a second and and talk about this idea of um, of fundamental change of governance and and how it how it could or how it would happen. The two examples that I gave in the open this this expulsion of two black Tennessee lawmakers and this decades long behavior that has been exposed of a Supreme Court justice really suggest the kind of 
um, impulsive, I guess, uh, but but also uh, willful, just sort of uh, departure from the idea of the way things are supposed to work in in uh, in in our country, and and I I wonder how much it seems like these kinds of instances are escalating where we just see people saying, well, we're just going to go back to the way we used to do it before or we're not going to acknowledge uh, the kind of restrictions that, 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 that exist to prevent things from, from happening. We are just done is, is what they seem to be saying in many ways. Uh, and I, and I want to get your reaction to that. Is this, is this what they're saying? And is this what's, What's really happening? Well, Marjorie Taylor Greene said it in so many words, right? I mean, she said, we are just done. The red states are simply done. But, uh, you know, what does that mean to be done, right? Um, This country is a democracy, but it's not simply a democracy. It's a constitutional democracy. It's a liberal democracy. And what you saw in Tennessee is in some ways uh, the raw democracy over the liberal or the constitutional side of it, right? I mean, what you saw was an exercise in raw majoritarianism in Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Republicans over there had a two-third majority, and they decided that they were going to oust uh, two black lawmakers because simply because they protested uh, gun rights after an awful shooting uh, in, in, in the state. And the interesting thing about, you know, what the speaker um, in the in the legislature su- suggested was that these two lawmakers were behaving like insurrectionists on January mm-hmm, 6th. Mm-hmm. Now, this is very interesting because to date, the la- many members of the right have not actually admitted that January 6th was an insurrection. So I guess that's progress of sorts, right? Like they are admitting <laughs> that January 6th was an insurrection, but they think it was not so bad. But this peaceful protest by two black lawmakers on the floor of the House apparently was an insurrection. So what you see is that when, um, you know, when you have just saw a raw flexing of majoritarian muscle, it can define any event it wants to in any way it wants to, right? So January 6th was an insurrection, but not worth um it's not actionable, and you can see it from a lot of right-wing commentary on the charges against Trump. Mm-hmm. They just don't think it's worth um, charging him for incitement or any of those you know, crimes uh, or alleged crimes that he may have committed. On the other hand, two, law- two black lawmakers who were protesting in a legitimate way, disorderly, perhaps unruly perhaps but they were not you know there was no violence they were they were only really just only words and they have decided decided to oust them even as trump has not been impeached twice for far far worse transgressions and what you see over here is that uh you know when a social compact breaks down about uh you know what are our common values what is the common good what you see is a flexing of raw majoritarian muscle and that's really what's happening over here yeah 
Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with uh, Sheikha Dalamia, a visiting fellow at George Mason University's Mercatus Center. also want to get going with you, the listeners, on the phones and on social. Call and tell us what you make of all of the division that we see in our country right now and these specific instances where states and individuals seem to just be doing whatever it is they think they need to do without regard to that common sense of governance and Americanism that has kept the union together for nearly 250 years. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation. Especially want to hear from folks who support the idea that maybe this American experiment has run its course, that maybe there isn't more to be had and that going our separate ways might be better. Again, if you think that, uh, give us a call or hit us on social. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Has America run its course? Is it time for something like a national divorce? Can we heal the massive political and cultural cleaves that exist in this country right now? Or would we all be better off if we just went our separate ways? It's an idea that is gaining some traction and has been discussed for several months after a congressperson from the state of Georgia, Marjorie Taylor Greene, suggested the idea of a national divorce. Lots of people have been writing and thinking about what that would mean and what that would look like practically. In the last week, I saw two stories that really reminded me that we live in really different spaces. We make different assumptions about right and wrong. We make different choices about how we want to govern ourselves. So is this already happening? Are we already splitting up as a nation? Are we already headed for a time when there is not just one America? Sheikha Dalmia is our guest. She is a visiting fellow with the George Mason University's Mercatus Center. She started a program there to study and resist the rise of right-wing populist authoritarianism, uh, both here in America and around the world. She's also someone that I talk to pretty frequently about this cultural divide, this polarization and what it means, we would hear from you during the conversation as well. Give us a call and let us know about your feelings about America right now. Are you, are you done with people who fundamentally disagree with the way you see the world? Are you ready for something different where you might not have to fight with those people to have things work the way that you want them to work? Would we be better off? if we could all just kind of create the space that we want and not have these really, really bitter clashes constantly about all of this. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. Let's start today with Dennis in Dearborn. Dennis, what's on your mind? 
Well, good morning. I, I'm just. Uh, this is an interesting turn of events because I usually uh, uh, call in as a pessimist, and you make me an optimist, and now I feel like I have to fight back and make you an optimist here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So one of the one of the things, the separation. I mean, from the middle, we we've got this experiment that believes we can do it together. So we have a constitutional understanding. What's, so what's our definition? I, we, I think we got to go back to more education in terms of, of definitions. So I want a constitutional life. A lot of, a lot of the people that I, I get in conference with, uh, conflict with, they want a, uh, uh, a, uh, of financial, they they want capitalism. That 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 the root of success is capitalism. Mm-hmm. I'm a capitalist. I believe in it. Uh, and but my definition would be that it it includes more people, and that rather than profit, uh, full employment would be the uh, the struggle and those kind of things. So get those definitions straight. So if conservatives want freedom. What do they want freedom from? What do they want to do? Mm-hmm. Us liberals want freedom. What is it well, we want freedom from, and what is it that we want to do? Those, those are debates that could lead someplace if we had the definitions and the respect for Yeah. So, so, Dennis, I, I love that framing, the idea of everybody trying to define what freedom means for them. Uh, and I think you're right, that that's a great starting point for the discussion. I, the, the, the snag that I see is and and look this is coming from you know my side of the political spectrum which is more left than right for sure uh is that freedom on the right right now is being defined by many people as freedom to dictate how how much freedom other people have right um you talk about the debates over uh, racial inequality you talk about the debates over gender inequality and uh, sexual orientation and all of these things where the nation is becoming overall more progressive, more accepting. And there are people who say, look, I, I want to limit the amount of freedom that people have on those bases. Uh, and I think that's a fundamental difference in the way that we not only see things like the Constitution or the country, but in the way we see each other as human beings. And I think um, uh, you, you're right that I'm pessimistic right now uh, about the prospects for, for healing that, uh, but I'm not, I'm not completely con- convinced that we can't do it, right? Uh, but, but I do think that's a very fundamental precept in people's lives, and, and I don't know right now, how you kind of bridge the gap between between those things. Sheikha, I wonder what your reaction is to, to what Dennis yeah, is talking about. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that framing too. Uh, you know, we in some ways are all fundamentally sparring about some fundamental terms uh, in our political lexicon. What is freedom? What does it mean to you? And we were able to have these kinds of discussions without the country falling apart. Ten years ago, right? It's becoming harder and harder to do that now. And, um, you know, our, what was our compact? Well, the American compact was that we have a constitution which has a Bill of Rights. And that Bill of Rights applies to all the states, right? 
And beyond that Bill of Rights, so long as the states provide some basic protections, uh, as defined in the Bill of Rights, to all their citizens, they can, uh, uh, you know, they can do what they want. I mean, so it was a certain federalist framework, states' rights frameworks, within a constitutional framework of individual rights. Now, as the, as progressive activism to expand, in some ways, I would argue, the Bill of Rights to different groups, transgender groups, gays, what have you, has, uh, you know, picked up, um, there is pushback on the other side. Uh, red states are pushing back. You know, they had a certain understanding of who the Bill of Rights applies to, and they feel it's gone too far. But in response to it going too far, they are not, I feel, in a place where they just want to discuss within the procedural and the deliberative channels that have been established in the constitutions. They want to smash the system down. I mean, that's kind of where this whole talk about national divorce is coming, that, you know, red, red states, like people like Marjorie Taylor Greene are saying, you know, we don't want to talk to you blue states anymore. You are too beyond the pale. We are just going to go our separate way. And that is the dangerous, you know, like, that's the tipping point. And Another let, one thing let me add uh, also is why I am pessimistic, just like you right now, Stephen, although not without hope. I'm pessimistic, but not without hope. My pessimism stems from the fact, not just what Marjorie Taylor Greene wants, but the picture that she is painting of the other side of blue states mm-hmm. and what they want. And if you look at that Twitter thread, which started this whole discussion, it is kind of like chilling, not only because of its proposals, but the kinds of things she's attributing to what blue states want. So blue, st- whereas, you know, red states are going to have strong, uh, you know, law enforcement, blue states are going to have communist training camps for BLM types. I mean, that's her vision of what's going to happen in the blue, uh, is happening in the blue states. Mm-hmm. The problem with that kind of talk is not only that it's completely false and over the top, but it continues to radicalize her side. It continues to radicalize red states. It continues to, you know, make blue states and progressives the bogeyman. And there is a huge right-wing industry which is doing just that until you find a way to calm them down and get through to, you know, people, uh, you know, to uh, people who are listening to Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's extremely, extremely hard about how do you have the kind of reasoned conversations that your guest is talking or your uh, commenter is talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dennis, really appreciate the call and the really thoughtful analysis of of these really difficult questions. Uh, Let's go next to Layla in Detroit. Layla, welcome to the show. Hi, uh, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to um, voice my concern about the way in which, in which we're framing the discussion because we're talking about the extremes and forgetting that the majority of Americans really reside somewhere in the middle. And um, and I, I as, a, as a middle ground person who <laughs> makes their bread and butter from um, discussions about disagreement at Wayne State. I, I really believe that disagreement is necessary for understanding and that if we just stay at the extremes, then there's no opportunity for rapprochement. Mm. And, um, so that's, 
that's my two cents. Yeah. So, so I, I want to get you to expand a little, Layla, on this idea. When you say you occupy the middle, what what does that mean to you? Um. So, I I uh hmm. I occupy the middle in the sense that I can see both sides of the argument. You mentioned that, you know, the different sides start from different assumptions and even different ideas about what is truth and and what is virtuous and mm-hmm. what is valued. Um, and I, I occupy a space in which I can see the education and reasoning for, for both sides. Of course, I have my own views on the issues, but um, I'm always prepared to modify my view if what I'm faced with is is more reasonable than the position that I'm currently taking. And I find that that position of epistemic humility is seriously mm. lacking yeah. in our political discourse. But not only that, when when people at the extremes um, receive more attention than maybe they deserve, um, then it actually um, diminishes our capabilities and our abilities to to reason with each other. Yeah, yeah, uh, Layla, I'm really glad you called, and and I think that's a wonderful explanation of a way to try to to try to think things through and to to be able to have. Uh, more understanding, I guess, of of people who think differently. Uh, but this idea that most people uh, occupy that ground is interesting as well. Sheikha, the, the idea that maybe the focus on someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, is is misplaced because not not uh, not as many people as we might think uh, actually occupy these these kind of extremes. I guess I don't know. I don't know what which is uh, is the better way to, to to kind of think that through, but I think Layla makes a good point that we don't pay as much of attention to what's in the middle, and and I guess that's where the the possibilities lie. No, I think uh, you know that's absolutely correct. Somewhere in the center, Rick, uh, you know, our, our discourse and our politics have become so polarized. Uh, that the center, the moderate center, is cratering, and the real issue is how do you reconstitute this center, which is where many, many Americans, and I would at this point, you know, venture to say even the majority of Americans uh, uh, lay, and I completely share the sense of like despair and political homelessness that your caller uh, uh, expressed, because I feel it too. I mean, I feel like. You know, I'm uh, definitely not of the right. I used to be of the right, as you well know, but mm-hmm. it's, you know, the right has turned uh, um, so extreme and so disconnected from reality that that no longer provides a home for me. And um, and even though I feel for a lot of progressive causes, you know, I'm in favor of having a conversation about transgender rights and offering more rights to more people, I feel the left is, uh, you know, engaged uh, no longer in really convincing hearts and minds to get to where it wants to get to, but rather than using, you know, not state force, which is what the right is doing, but social force in a way that, you know, people are reacting to that. 
And uh, and so we, you know, we need to have forces of moderation step in from both sides. But um, so I, I mean, I feel, I mean, I feel the despair that your caller is feeling. I, but so, but why should we focus on Marjorie Taylor Greene? First of all, I think that, you know, everything changed in this country. We were having political conversations about these new rights that progressives were calling for in a fairly reasonable and a rational way till Trump came along, right? I mean, Trump came along and he has taken over an entire party which represented half of the country. And that party has become so extreme at this stage. Marjorie Taylor Greene has the ear of Kevin McCarthy. Mm -hmm. She may be the vice presidential running mate of Donald Trump. So at this stage, I feel like if we ignore what she is, you know, saying and doing, we we risk being taken by surprise just as we, you know, we were taken by surprise with the advent of Trump. You know, there was right-wing talk radio show which had been fomenting for extremism for a long time, and we kept thinking, oh, this is just the lunatic fringe and we can just ignore it. Turned out to be a mistake, and I think, therefore, to, you know, ignore what Marjorie Taylor Greene is saying might also be a mistake. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Sheikha Dalmia and continue to hear from you, the listeners, on the phones and on social. Daniel and Adelia in Detroit will get to you, as well as John on the east side. If you want to join them, again, 313-577-1019 is the number. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. We can include you that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Aretha Franklin. This is B.B. King. Hello, this is Jack White. This is Elvis Costello. And you're listening to WDET FM Detroit, your source for quality arts and information programming since 1949. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Sheikha Dalmia. She's a visiting fellow with George Mason University's Mercatus Center. She started a program there to study and resist the rise of right-wing populist authoritarianism here at home and all around the globe. She's someone I talk to fairly frequently uh, about polarization and the cultural divides that exist in our country, where they come from, what they mean to us, and what they mean for the future of America. That's specifically what we're talking about today is the idea that maybe America has run its course, this grand experiment in democracy. Uh, Maybe we can't hold it all together anymore because there are such profound differences among us. Uh, What do you think of that idea? Are you in favor of rethinking this nation and rethinking what's part of this nation and maybe what's not? Uh, Or are you somebody who fears that uh, that would happen and worries what the consequences would look like for people in all the parts of the country if uh, this were not one place? Uh, How much do you worry about the things that we continue to see that I think highlight how differently we just think 
of uh, our role and our place in this nation, this expulsion of two black lawmakers in Tennessee last week uh, with no real due process, uh, with no sense of equality, given that they didn't expel a white member of the legislature there who was doing the same things as uh, as the black members. Uh, how do you make sense of that in America where we are supposed to be treating each other equally, where we are supposed to respect due process? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and uh, we can include you in the conversation that way. Uh, Shika, before we go back to our callers and social media commenters, I do want to want to talk more specifically about um, uh, about examples elsewhere where – this kind of polarization has been overcome and people stitch, stitch things back together. Uh, where should we be looking to try, externally at least, to try to solve this? Ooh, that's a tough question, uh, Stephen. Uh, by the way, for your uh, listeners, um, I have a, a magazine, a Substack magazine called yes. Unpopulist, uh, unpopulist.net, which is completely free. And we, you know, are constantly grappling with exactly the questions we are talking about right now and also looking at the rest of the world and, you know, where uh, everywhere where the forces of right-wing extremism are on the rise. Um, You know, Stephen, it's hard to tell. I guess, um, you know, Latin America, you know, fundamentally what we are witnessing over here is a moment of uh, unvarnished populism, right? And populism, not in a good sense, but in a bad sense, where the people want to put their faith in not the parliamentary and the constitutional traditions of their country, but in a strong man leader who can deliver to them what they want. And populism is fundamentally, you know, a phenomenon of uh, majoritarianism, where a majority feels that the parliamentary systems are working against them and not for them. So they lose faith in just going through normal, regular channels of deliberation and want to get what they can through a certain strong man whom they feel they have the numbers to elect. And uh, there have been moments of populism in the world forever, not so much in America. It's interesting. I mean, America had populist movements, but they always kind of got Mm co-opted. And so therefore, I think America in some ways offers the best example. So in the uh, late 1900s, there was uh, the the people's movement. William Jennings Bryan was sort of the, you know, part of that. And before it got too extreme, it was more a labor union, a working class movement. Before it got too extreme, the Democratic modified itself and absorbed parts of it in its agenda and the movement kind of dissipated. And I think something like that needs to happen on the Republican side, right, on the right. And there are, I mean, you know, this is why I said I'm pessimistic because of the radicalization that people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and the Tennessee example are fermenting. But there are also, there is also pushback within the right, right? I see myself as a reform movement within the right. Uh, 
trying to both explain progressive, uh, you know, what progressives want in calmer, less uh, scary terms, while at the same time exhorting my, si- my side <laughs> to understand that they, they give up on constitutional traditions in the United States. Life on the other side is nasty, brutish, and short, and, you know, they won't like the outcome of it. And uh, I think there are also within the Republican Party, I mean, there are saner voices. Uh, The question is, but the Republican Party is in sort of a race between, you know, the the forces of moderation and the forces of radicalism that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene represents. So the question is which side will win. But I think our own history, to some extent, offers us some hope and some guidance. I think Republicans have to rise to the challenge and bring their own side under some kind of like control. Mm, Yeah. Again, 313-577. 1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Adelia in Detroit. Adelia, welcome to the show. Yes, thank you mm-hmm. for uh, taking my call, Stephen. I'm, you know, I, I'm going to go to some hard points right mm-hmm. away so I don't take up too much of your time with your guests. <laughs> That's okay. Um, I see apartheid 2.0 pretty much manifesting itself right before us. Uh Tennessee is kind of what southern background town country. I mean, a uh, state. It's a somewhat back, still stuck back in some kind of era. I'm talking about the Caucasian male, who's pretty much running the show there, and the Caesars just in uh, times two, standing so strong. I was just enamored with presentation and it is repeated on YouTube mm-hmm. uh four six twenty three and Justin Jones uh representative Justin Jones gives his speech on uh why he should not be expelled. And they just voted him right on out after he gave his long soliloquy right. and his spirit his ministry came out of him. He was using the resurrection and being exposed to this level of trepidation and yeah. disrespect was something that he felt he had to give a speech about, and he actually turned it into a ministerial uh, ceremony, sure. sure. which he was using that energy also because he was fighting up against what he called a spirit of evil. And so he went all the way to that another dimension of discussion about the nature of the beast yeah. in which we are, are living through and in. And it is happening, and we are living through it. So I don't know how we're supposed to intellectualize this. I'm not sure how we're going to change it. (laughs) I know in Africa they changed it. In Africa they had a whole series of commissions discussing the effects of what racism did to them and how it was an extensive discussion, and it was quite a series of presentations, and they went deeply into the emotional hurt of traumatization of apartheid, racism, and abuse. Yeah. Uh, so Adelia, I think we're coming to that point now. Yeah. I believe we're coming to that I, point. I hope you're right. right. I hope you're right. Um, but I think that's a great framing for what happened in Tennessee, and it's the way that um, I think a lot of people feel, which is that this was a lawless act, right? Um, uh, expelling these members for what they did with no due process. I mean, there is a process in the Tennessee legislature for dealing with, you know, ethics violations or, or other kinds of violations. They didn't go through any of that. They just told them that they were going to strip them of their seats. 
apartheid is one way to, to, to sort of analogize that, but there are also other kinds of uh, authoritarian regimes that, that behave that way and have behaved that way. And again, my concern is this idea that these legislators in, in Tennessee, the leadership there, doesn't feel like there's any obligation to, to recognize any any sort of due process or any rights for these black legislators. And the idea that, you know, they can do what they want to not only those representatives, but to the people that they're representing in that in that body is just ultra, ultra dangerous. Um, and, and, and I'm glad you called and, and brought us back to that point. Uh, Sheikha, I wonder what you make of that comparison. No, I think that comparison is spot on because one point that's getting lost is that it's not just a question of stripping these two lawmakers of their duly elected seats, mm-hmm. right? What does that mean? It means you are basically disenfranchising the districts that they represent. That's and right. who are the members of this district? But by and large, African-American voters. So in a state which has an ugly history of racism, slavery, apartheid, uh, segregation, um, and, uh, 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 you know, which hasn't been overcome, you are depriving African-Americans of whatever little representation that they have, right? So it is extremely dangerous. And I think uh, apartheid is, in fact, the right metaphor for Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, now let me just point out in South Africa, the apartheid, you know, the dismantling of the apartheid system happened just about as well as it could have. Uh, You know, Nelson Mandela Mandela was an extremely generous figure uh, when the, uh, you know, um, black government took over and he was in charge. You know, he had reconciliation committees. He there was no reprisal, no revenge against, uh, you know, the white community that had been brutally ruling over the, uh, you know, the black community. And yet, actually, I've run a few pieces at uh, on the unpopulist by this brilliant new writer, Eve Furbanks. That experiment hasn't worked out that well. Yeah. Things are falling apart in South. So the point is that when you have these very entrenched systems of domination, they, there is no good way to overcome them. Uh, the status quo interests who stand to lose out are always going to be asserting themselves. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, I think that's what you are seeing in Tennessee, but even in the rest of the country where whites feel that they are losing you know, their uh, uh, certain existence, status quo, privileges and domination are pushing back. You are seeing a, mo- a movement of pushback from the right and its radicalization at the current moment. Yeah, yeah. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone. It's, uh, Daniel in Detroit, you're up next. Daniel, what's on your mind? Hey, thanks for having me on the show again. You know, I think anytime we talk about the divide in this country, we need to include the roots of the divide. And and from my perspective, and I'm in the middle, and my perspective of being in the middle is being able to evaluate what's being said on both sides and taking the best from one side and best from the other. There, I like to say there are no bad, good ideas. And good ideas come from both sides. But let me talk about the divide. Look at gun control. 
the majority of Americans want want sensible gun legislation. Why can't we get it done? Because of money and politics. Mm-hmm. Majority of Americans want sensible immigration laws. We want to fix the southern border. Why can't we get it done? All of these problems that we have, health care, we have a terrible health care system in this country. Why can't we get it fixed? Because millions of dollars are flowing into this thing. The healthcare people that are making billions of dollars right now don't want the health system fixed. The gun companies don't want gun legislation. The NRA is so powerful, they even changed President Trump's view. Mm-hmm. After the mass shooting, they went to his office and he stopped talking about legislation as soon as they gave him $30 million towards his campaign. If we can't get money out of politics, this yeah. country is going to be destroyed. Yeah. How do we make Michigan yeah, I think the example for the country? Yeah, Daniel, How do we do that? Daniel, I, I, I love that point. Uh, I'm somebody who talks an awful lot about the damage done to our political system by the unbridled flow and unregulated flow of money. Uh, into it that we've seen, especially since uh, Citizens United, which was uh, the Supreme Court's uh, decision about campaign finance uh, regulations. Uh, Ashika, what what role does money play in all of this divide and and the inability to, to, to kind of grapple with it? You know, Daniel's point that this obscures the discussions about these important issues. We've only got about a minute and a half left, but, but go ahead. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's, uh, I, this is, I think, one area I would disagree with you and your caller on. I mean, I think money matters, but I don't think it matters all that much. Uh, you know, why did Trump change his views about gun control <laughs> once he was, it was partly because of NRA's money, but I think partly he had doubled down in this on the strategy of mobilizing his base uh, to come out and vote for him and his hard right base is opposed to any kind of gun control. By the way, he did ban bump stock and a few other things. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, you know, he did make some gestures toward what your caller would want. But I think the problem right now is the uh, hard right base more and money less. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we do disagree about that. <laughs> I think money even plays a, a pretty big role, and, and again, just obscuring the way that we talk about these things and the way people. Let me point out that. one thing to you. You know, Trump didn't need a whole lot of money to get elected. Well, that's true. He had his own. You know, right? he he he. His was not, especially the first time around. He didn't spend all that. That's money, really true. That much money. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so... <laughs> okay. All right. Well, Ashika Dalmia, it is always really wonderful to have you here uh, on the show. And again, you can uh, check out her uh, Substack, Unpopulist, at unpopulist.net. That's the address, right? Yes, theunpopulist.net. Yes. yes, very good. Uh, okay, thanks so much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. We will have more great programming for you tomorrow here on Detroit Today. Also, remember, if you like the show and enjoy it, share it. Share it with your friends and your family, your neighbors, anyone you think might really enjoy being part of the community that we're building here. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.